Welcome to the Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. Hello and welcome to the Recappery. Today we continue our coverage of Netflix's The Crown. This is season two, episode six, Vergangenheit. No, I practiced saying that for a long time, so I'm going to say it again because it no- doesn't come up anywhere else in this. Okay. Vergangenheit. There you How go. that? Thank you. Okay. Because it's tight to you too. <laughs> and oh, it means the past in German. That's it. A long word to mean a short word. Well, the synopsis for this particular episode, the Netflix version, is a secret World War II document opens Elizabeth's eyes to grim realities about a family member. The Duke of Windsor campaigns to re-enter public life. I am going to make a Queen Elizabeth-focused subtitle because it is about the crown. She is the crown. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Queen Elizabeth explores the nature of forgiveness and we, the audience, get a history lesson. Mine is only three words. Nazi forgiveness, WWJD. (laughs) There you go. I actually had a second one that, you know, I was playing around with. It's you think your Uncle David makes a mess of family reunions? (laughs) Okay, I actually like that one better. Winner, winner. (laughs) Okay, this episode begins like a lot of them. There's a black screen and a sound and the sound is kind of roaring. You don't know what it is, but the scene opens up on a very sunshiny and misty green forest. And the roaring turns out to be three army jeeps racing down a road through that forest. And the card, the first of many cards in this particular episode, reads Thuringia Forest, Germany, 1945. So the war, World War II, ended in 1945. But we don't know yet if it's the first half war or the second half all done war. We don't know. Um, Thuringia Forest, if you look at a traditional map of modern Germany, is right in the middle of the right-hand border. And I will tell you, it was a pretty willingly Nazi area during the war. So um, the locals might not be on the American side. That's all I'm saying about that. (laughs) But they are American Jeeps. You can see the star on the front, the logo. We hear American voices. That's pretty different for the show. It's a group of U.S. soldiers in those Jeeps, and they're getting directions from a German officer, Carl von Loesch, who's directing them into the woods. Well, at this point, we don't know what he is. We don't know unless you've stopped and Googled his name already, and then you you get a lot of information about him. (laughs) Von Loesch pulls him to the side. He's like, this is where we get out. Everybody gets out of the three Jeeps. There's five men, and they go on a little hike with shovels and guns, what you need on a hike. I want you to notice how watchful these soldiers are. So that goes along with the fact that this area was very, very pro-Nazi. So they're very watchful. And that war has not been over for very long. So they are still on super guard. Von Loesch brings him to the spot and he does like a circle walk and he says, here. So the guys start digging. Five guys in the hole and no one lost a toe. Realism. (laughs) I wrote, it's two feet deep. There's five guys that need to shovel out two feet of dirt. (laughs) And also, I was wondering about the integrated unit because the driver, the private, I guess is what he is, is uh, an Mm African-American. And I thought that was curious. And evidently, there were some integrated units right at the end of the war in 1945. Oh, excellent. That's a nice touch. (laughs) So the guys dig up this metal box. And obviously it's something important because next thing we know, that metal box is back in the Jeeps and they are hightailing it back to a castle. 
Then we get another card and it says Marburg Castle. So Marburg Castle, where ultimately 400 tons of German documents were discovered hidden there. You know what? Even are all these papers? No one knows. Army units are not equipped to decide about anything or process anything. Ultimately, each country had to appoint historians to go through all these things. And we'll see them later. But this right here was right after they discovered all this. We're in the holy crap, holy crap part, right? Mm -hmm. I guess we can now date this day because Von Loesch took an American army officer into the woods on May 14th, 1945. Literally right after the war was over. <laughs> yeah. So we, f we followed the box. It comes into the courtyard on a Jeep. It comes out of the Jeep and put on a table. It's obviously very important because a lot of people are gathering around it and it's opened up to reveal letters from Hitler. So Von Loesch looks nervous when they open the box, as well he might, because his life literally depends on how valuable these men think the information is, or their bosses. He has requested a full pardon and also a pension, and the British are like, well, you know, let's see how good it is first. So we have to get this translated because we have, you know, like 80 elephants worth of other stuff to deal with too back here, <laughs> right? I mean, like, so he should be nervous, honestly, because he, by this time, had been outed as both a member of the SS and a natural-born British citizen. So his actions were, therefore, treason. And he is facing hanging unless these men feel like he has given them enough stuff. Mm-hmm. In that box is also several containers of microfilm. So the British guys, so there's the American guys and then there's the British guys, all soldiers. He opens up this reel of microfilm to kind of look at it. Yeah, but why? Because he doesn't, obviously he doesn't read German, right? So No, no. <laughs> okay. They still have no idea what they have in their hands. But letters from Hitler or letters to Hitler is probably an indication that this is some good stuff in this box, you'd think, right? You know, like I said, we got, you know, 400 tons of crap here. Who knows what's what? Any box could be the thing, you know? Uh, I kept thinking, because there's tables full of these boxes with documents in it. What happens if it rains? Then uh, they have 320 tons of stuff. That's right. <laughs> well, the British guy says, let's get this translated. And the next thing we know, we're going to get it translated. We're driving down a city street, and yet another card says... Foreign Office, London. The microfilm containers are taken out of the box and they join more microfilm containers in a room full of microfilm containers, although some of them say duplicate on them. So it's all routine. It's all routine. Whatever. The operator grabs a can at random, just like he probably does every 15 minutes of his whole entire working life, threads it into his machine and winds it back to the beginning. So far, yeah. settles in to read the first page. Octin means like um, dossier, file. That's all. Okay, next page. He doesn't even care. It's floofy writing, by the way, so we can't see what else is on that page. These people have their calligraphy pens out to write their files. I don't know. But it's the second page that gets his attention. Okay, so now it's not routine anymore. His day has become something else. He sits up. He adjusts his posture. He is a little bit disbelieving, and he starts to type. We see a word on the second page that we even recognize, Windsor. Hmm. And even I, who am not very far on the Duolingo German, know the word Herzog and Herzogin von Windsor. So it's the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Uh, roll it back a little bit. Now you're doing German too? Uh, yeah, I gave up on Spanish. And you finished French. I finished the French. Nice. 
it was too hard to do Spanish and French because they're enough alike that I keep okay. getting confused. Whereas German is not. <laughs> yes. No, I got a C in college because someone said, if you know French, you can speak Spanish. So I took Spanish. <laughs> not a good idea. So you can't read all the words. Um, I was so clever filmmaking. They've kind of blurred some of the words on the edges. I did read something about weeks in Spain. And anyway, he's alarmed enough to type nervously and he runs his papers sweatily down the hall. He bursts into his boss's office, who is angry for about two seconds. Don't you knock? But then he sees the paper and now there are two. They go to another office and they do rush past this poor secretary who's trying to stop them. But I love, love, love when the medium boss gives the operator a pointed look and knocks first on the big boss's door. Har, har. (laughs) (laughs) And big boss is really startled when he reads it. And he says that, oh, we have to involve the prime minister. It's time. It's time. I had you used a microfilm machine when you were in college or high school. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I wondered if I didn't have any kids in the room with me because I would have paused it and asked them what it was because they have no idea. I mean, it was you know now they get digitized information, but back then you had to like turn the crank. I'm like I had flashbacks and it was they weren't pretty. Uh. I remember you had to look away when it was traveling sometimes because you'd get really dizzy. Mm-hmm. You know the microfilm was in, it was invented in 1839. It goes way back. I was pretty surprised about that. Finally, we get to see Churchill again. I've missed him. Churchill has his copy and his cigar and his glass of brown, and he reads it and decides it's time to call the king. Uh, I was medium confused for a second. I'm like, wait, Winston? And I forgot we time traveled a little in this one. I forgot, you know. For all the effort they made making the cards um, for me, I I was like, wait, I just got used to Macmillan. What is going on? Okay. Okay. We have traveled in time. (laughs) We haven't traveled forward yet. Yeah, this is a really long um, flashback. In the king's office, we finally get to see this document, and it says Marburg Files, Volume 10, Captured German Documents Unit. 1940. And the king and the queen mom are both reading it under the watchful eye of Churchill and a very young Lassels. <laughs> so I loved seeing Papa again, too. I was very happy to see him. And isn't it strange to see Lassels in a sort of subservient position with both Churchill and the king? Mm-hmm. The way he's not with Queen Elizabeth II. He's like, oh, yes, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. He's not the elder statesman machine that he is later. It's right. And his hair is much darker. I guess that makes him look younger, I suppose. Well, that's the part I did expect. <laughs> oh, I yeah. didn't expect the temperament change. So that was good. So the king says, we always suspected it. And the queen mom says, this file must never see the light of day. And I have to remind everyone that Herr Hitler himself once called the queen mom the most dangerous woman in Europe. We have been forgetting that. Well, the show's been forgetting it, frankly. Um, She and her refusal to leave Buckingham Palace during the bombing really heartened the British people and really caused Hitler any number of sleepless nights when he realized that her keeping her children in town and being an example of bravery was really hurting his chances at breaking the British people's will. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see how well they were working together, you know, the queen and the king together. Mm-hmm. And I love the authenticity of this show. She stands behind him at one point and puts her hand on his shoulder and we get a shot of her engagement ring. If you stop it, you'll see that it's a sapphire, like an oval sapphire with diamonds around the outside edge. That was her original engagement ring. She swapped it out for a pearl later in the 50s. But since we're still, you know, pre-mid 50s, she's still wearing this blue engagement ring. So yay for fact checkers. (laughs) Well, Winston Churchill agrees that this file would wreck up morale and the national interest. And King George says that this would bring shame upon this family and our people would never forgive us. Fade to black. Start the opening sequence. And I was watching this on my laptop and I have the right app. So I was able to skip it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was so excited. We're going to open the actual show after the opening sequence from the back of a television set. And it's the queen mom and Elizabeth sitting on the couch having tea. They're not drinking liquor. And they're watching Billy Graham speak on the TV. The queen mom is very cynical, but Elizabeth is quite impressed. Okay, number one, where is this TV plugged in? It is freaking me out. (laughs) Look at it. The only thing I could think of is that this piece of furniture is specially constructed so the cord goes down the pillar into some kind of outlet in the floor because it is like a ghost TV. It is going, but nobody knows why. So that distracted me. Yeah, the ghost TV. Anyway, (laughs) so evidently Billy Graham is speaking in front of 11,000 people in the performance crusade, whatever you call it, that he is performing on this TV during this episode. But ultimately, one 0.5 million Britons saw him speak in person. That doesn't count TV audience. They saw him speak in 1954, though. It's a timeline thing. They had to figure out how to get it in here. So they're messing with the timeline a little bit. But yeah, in 1954, he made his first trip to England for his crusades, his performances. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Okay. (laughs) What do you what do you mean? Well, you no, you said his performances, and I, I don't, I never thought of it as a performance before. It's a, it's a, it's he's a pastor, he's a reverend, he's giving a sermon, and he's having an altar call to bring people to Christ. I never thought of it as performance, but yes, I guess it is. I, I could call it performance art if it makes it better. <laughs> I don't think it does. Um, so I'm with the Queen Mom, where she says it's rare. And not entirely reassuring to see religious certainty in one so young. I think moral authority and spiritual guidance should come from someone with a little life experience. And then she gives him another dig and she says, someone who learned their trade selling brushes door to door in North Carolina. But Elizabeth is like, she doesn't want to hear any of this negative stuff. She is actually very interested in what the man is saying on television. The queen mom objects to people crying. (laughs) They didn't cry during the whole war. And now they cry what's happening to this country. That made me laugh. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty funny. You know, and yes, he was a brush salesman, but he was a brush salesman between high school and college. It was like a, a year, a summer job. That was it. And then he went to college. He is actually a college graduate. He has a degree in anthropology from Wheaton College in Illinois. It's going to happen again. They call him this brush salesman, but really it was just a short-lived gig. How would you like to be called whatever your high school job was? Like, Mm -hmm. I'm the hot dog girl. I don't think so. That wouldn't be good. (laughs) No. 
Um, so Billy Graham is saying things about hope, 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 hope. And Queen Elizabeth smiles. This is speaking to her heart. And then the Queen Mum calls him a zealot. <laughs> Only zealots shout, darling. <laughs> so what is a zealot exactly? The definition of a zealot is a person who is fanatical and uncompromising in pursuit of their religious or political ideals. And as he is depicted in this episode only, he is not a zealot because he is not uncompromising. He surprised me at the end of this episode. So I was happy to see it. Also, as a side note, this guy looks so much like my brother-in-law that I have got to find a picture to show you because it is freaking me out. I thought he looked an awful lot like Billy Graham. Well, that's good. I know. They do that really well on this show, I think. You know, my brother-in-law's last name is Graham. (gasps) No relation. I wouldn't think so, but who knows? Interesting. I It caught me a couple times. I was like, Graham, Graham, ha ha ha, in my head. But I never actually thought there could possibly be any connection. Interesting. So the short version is that the Queen Mom is not happy with her daughter's apparent interest in this American reverend. No, but Elizabeth is quite enthralled with his message. The screen goes back. It's on Elizabeth and then it goes black and then you hear a peacock crowing and opens on to this this beautiful home and another card tells you that it's Villa Windsor in Paris and there's a birthday celebration for David and Wallace's pug trooper we call him David because we covered Wallace Simpson and we decided to call him David just yeah you'll see his name is Edward yeah so we call him David so whenever we say that that's who we're talking about Okay, so the maids like this a lot, actually. Watch their face. They are singing enthusiastically. So funny. But everyone else is like, this is our life. (laughs) (laughs) So the other two pugs are called, I think, Disraeli and Diamond. There were later pugs, always pugs, called Impy and Davy Crockett. But I think we have Disraeli and Diamond sitting there. And all their dogs were spoiled like crazy. They ate out of silver bowls. They slept on velvet cushions. They pooped and peed wherever they felt like it. They had their own servant, at least part-time, to bake their special dog biscuits. And a birthday party, therefore, is nothing. (laughs) Yeah, no big deal. (laughs) You know what? Dorothy Parker had the same situation with her dogs. Her dogs pooped everywhere, too. But they didn't have an army of servants to walk around and deal with it. So the poop just built up in Dorothy Parker's life. Poopland. I love how they get the family photo. One of the servants gets down on his, you know, he crouches down with a camera to take a family photo of David and Wallace and the dogs. And the dogs have like party hats on. There's balloons. I mean, this is an all out birthday party. It's like a kid's birthday party for the dogs. Even the dogs had it, though. They Like, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Trooper. He's out. Peace out. I got to go pee on the floor. (laughs) So we know that the Windsors are having birthday parties for their dogs, but we get to see a montage of their entire life. It begins with a recreational shooting and drinking outing. Yeah, you should watch Wallace's face. She says after he shoots, bravo, well done. But the second he turns away, the smile falls off her face. And we talked about this during our Wallace Simpson episodes over on the History Chicks. She, Wallace, has sort of sentenced herself to this life with this man who depends on her, really only her, for every emotional need he ever has. 
Yes. These are all her friends that she's made that we're going to see. He sort of just tolerates them like scenery, but he hangs all the weight of his angst of his past on Wallace and has done now for about 20 years. So I'm not surprised she's drinking, actually, but just do listen to our Wallace Simpson show. There's so much nuance here that you can see so clearly if you know her backstory. And it's honestly hard for me to guess how she comes off to someone who doesn't know anything about her. So I would be very interested pre you listening to the Wallace Simpson episodes for you to write in and let us know because we're sort of pulling for her a little because we know what she's dealing with. Mm -hmm. Because we're Americans and not the British. (laughs) Didn't you say that once that the closer to Britain you were, the less sympathetic you were for Wallace? Yes, but nevertheless, I think you should still listen to the Wallace Simpson episodes and you can get mad at us or whatever, but we've done a lot of research. So (laughs) we're going to stand by what we say. And she's no angel. Like, don't get me wrong. There's no harp. There's no halo. It's fine. She's a human person. But honestly, the weight of your boyfriend slash husband's entire emotional life is hanging around your neck. It's a hard place to be. It is, uh, definitely. The next thing we're going to see is it's card night with their friends. Well, with her friends. And she's pretty excited about the whole thing. And can I just say she's wearing the most fabulous necklace. Yes, I have put a circle around crushed ice necklace. Clear acrylic daisies, all just like stacked up. It was lovely. I mean, Wallace Simpson was a fashion icon. So I'm glad that they went the extra mile for these big pieces like she would have worn. So this card game, I mean, Wallace is trying to fill his days. She's also trying to take the place of a whole country. So it's a hard road to hoe. Um, I also love this actress who is brilliant. Her name is Leah Williams. And honestly, she is exactly how I pictured Wallace Simpson. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not even just physically, but the, her mannerisms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way she talks to him, it's like he's just kind of mopey while he's playing. And she's like, where's your pep? <laughs> it clearly wears him out because the next thing we're going to see is David taking a nap. In his spectacular pants. Again, good job, costume department. He's moping in his room in those same pants, and he looks over at some pictures of himself when he was king. Yeah, I'm still of the opinion that if he had known that the abdication meant decades of exile, he would have never done it. That is my view. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what he thought was going to happen is, okay, I'm no longer the king, but I'll be a, I don't know, country gentleman of means in England I'll be a trusted advisor to my brother and then my niece, the queen. I'll be a beloved public figure to the people. And I can just do assorted high-class hobnobbery. That's, I think, how he pictured his future. With Wallace, you know, we'll have parties, we'll be medium powerful, and we don't have any official responsibilities. Excellent. But what he got instead was ostracized from his home country, dismissed, basically. And I think that if he had realized that was all ahead of him, I think he would have stayed king. I honestly do. Do you? That was mm-hmm. the one thing that would have... Yeah, because I think he gave it a lot of thought, you know, because it's not just a job to be king. So you think that would have been just enough information for him to say, forget it, go on, Wallace, go live your life? Like she said she wanted to do. Well, she said she wanted to stay his mistress, but not become his wife. Mm -hmm. That's where she landed. She did not want to be the queen, which the implication that she did later is a little wrong. But no, she did not want to be the queen. But he insisted on this whole abdication thing against her will. She begged him in front of witnesses and on the phone from where she had fled from him. Do not abdicate. It is not the right thing to do. And he did it anyway. 
Mm-hmm. So they were both sentenced <laughs> to mm-hmm. exile. exile. Yeah. But in their exile, they get to do things like go to costume parties. And to go to costume parties, you need to find a costume. David and Wallace are getting, this is a marvelous scene, are getting fit for costumes. Their first option is pirates. They both have these pirate costumes on and these big hats. And he speaks French with a very British accent, which I just love. Like, qu'est-ce que vous pensez? (laughs) Just makes me laugh. (laughs) Which means, what do you think? And the dresser is saying, parfait. And all he, David does is say, I don't like it. Next costume was, I want to say, Neptune and his queen. And she kind of jokes, at least I get to be queen once. You know, remember, she did not want to be the queen. I think it was a joke. But his next idea, I mean, Irk, I think he took her seriously. This little comment about being the queen so that, you know, they ended up with king and queen costumes, which is kind of like, holy moly, that is not what I meant. I wonder if her costume was based on like that lobster dress because she's got the silver mermaid skirt and there's this giant starfish like smack dab in the middle of it. Kind of like a very famous dress that she was photographed in that has a lobster on it, a huge lobster. Maybe. That was a good catch. I uh, would not be surprised if that was a little bit of a nod to us, you know, people that know that. Mm -hmm. Like a secret Easter egg. Oh, maybe. I hope so. Easter starfish. (laughs) I also think it was another little nod that the very first person you see at the costume party is Marie Antoinette with the ship on her head. Like, not a good example of a queen, though. Yes, I know. I In that point, I was like, oh, wait, is there a nautical theme to this party? Pirates, oh, Neptune, yeah. and then every single person you see here has, like, shells on their face mm-hmm. or... Yeah. Oh, no, I paused it because I, w- I was like the enchantment under the sea dance or something. <laughs> they, but they're in varied degrees of costume. Some are going all out like the Marie Antoinette who had head to toe Marie Antoinette and others just have like a, a squid mask on, <laughs> which was actually quite glorious or a seashell mask. Then there's these women with these cocktail dresses on. They look lovely and they have these tiny hats with goldfish just on the top. I love the big brass diver head. <laughs> so some people put in more effort than others, just like any cocktail party where there's costumes. Sometimes you get like one guy that has a, oh, I'm going to wear these glasses and that makes me Clark Kent or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So it was very realistic. Um, are there ladies standing on either side of the door? Like, is that their whole job? Um, try to hold your arm up like that for 15 minutes. See how far you get. I don't know if they were mermaids or goddesses or what they were, but like as you came in, all you see are these ladies' hands in there. I missed the ladies' hands. I was too busy looking at Marie Antoinette's ships, I think, on her head. So Wallace Simpson is sitting in another room. I thought it was a courtyard, but I think it's just another room. And she's looking at her costume crown in her lap. If I were to guess, I would say she is thinking that the very concept of a crown has ruined up her whole dang life. I'm going to agree with you. And he comes out to see her and um, he mopes a little bit more. So he starts in on the complaining and you can see she's really cracking. Remember, she's his whole social network. And can you just see her losing patience? I eat lunch with people of no consequence, he says. And she's like, my friends. Mm. A life of pleasure really has its limits, he says. She's right back at him. Try a life living with you. Like that is the harshest thing. And his obsession is such that he lets that go and doesn't even take it seriously. Is that so creepy? It is when there is nothing you can say to shut it off. Like break up with me. Don't abdicate. I don't want to be queen. 
not taking that seriously. I don't want to be the most hated woman in England, for example. Nope, not taking that seriously. So a life with you, he's not going to take that on board either. (laughs) Rolling over it like a bulldozer. Yeah. And he obviously went out there to tell her something. And I think that was part of it. Like she said a comment and he's like, forget it. I'm not even going to engage because I have to tell you my mission. And he's carrying on about how when he was the Prince of Wales, his motto was Eek Dein, which means I serve, which I thought was interesting because it's German. But that particular phrase goes way back to the 14th century as the motto of the Prince of Wales. But he's telling her that he wants a job. He wants a purpose. So she has heard this I need a job thing before. She refers to it as a delusion. Like she rolls her eyes. You know, they will not even let you in the country, much less offer you a job. She, reasonably so, is pretty bitter about the royal family's treatment of her. Actually, she's more irritated about their treatment of him because it affects her and he is family. You know, anyone can hate their in-law, whatever. I don't even care. But like the fact is, Jack... You have ruined up my life by ostracizing a member of your own family. And anyway, she makes no secret about the fact that she doesn't like them anymore. But mm-hmm. he surprises her this time. It is not just a pipe dream. He's actually taken practical and concrete steps. He has gotten a hold of someone who has put together a little team who he calls advocates of justice who can mobilize public opinion. So we talked about in the Wallace Simpson episode how almost 50% of the general population was sort of okay with this whole marrying Wallace Simpson thing already. And it is possible with his, I mean, he does have outward charm. He was the handsome Prince of Wales. He was a very popular king. We saw that before when he was leaving, you know, um, as long as no one knows what he really thinks of you, because I don't think it's that (laughs) complimentary, you know, low people. Well, anyway, you know, if he thinks her rich friends are low, I can't imagine what he thinks of coal miners. But anyway, he uh, could really have lived okay in England, I think. I don't think the marriage thing would have been the deal breaker. If the royal family had stood beside him. Mm -hmm. But they didn't. So he's in exile. No, I'm just saying I don't think it's necessarily ridiculous to think that his friends, his powerful friends back in England, Mm -hmm. could turn the tide. Mm -mm. No, I don't think so either. Because his polls only tell him the positive things, that he can overcome this. He's not even looking at any any information that's negative. In his mind, the only negative thing he has to overcome is his family. And that there's been a lot of time and he can come back in. He thinks this is completely possible. Well, and it might be. Honestly, it might be completely possible. Mm -hmm. But we go back to London. Michael Adine is meeting with the Queen while Philip is sitting in the room reading a paper. Elizabeth has a request that Adine wasn't prepared for, and he has one for her. I absolutely love in this scene how Philip is putting in his oar now. It's different. Now, like he doesn't expect to be obeyed exactly, but also Elizabeth doesn't get all territorial about it either. It's more balanced now. That's interesting because I was looking at it like he doesn't know what his role is still. So he's going to go to the far extreme and just throw his opinion in everywhere. I, I actually saw it as a very, very good development. Like he doesn't expect that his word is law like he did in earlier episodes. He would get really mad if she dismissed him. But now it's more like, well, I'm going to say this thing. And she's like, all right, I'm going to hear it. But then she doesn't have to listen. And he doesn't get mad about her not listening. He understands that she has to look at things from a bigger perspective, I think. I, anyway, I, I thought it was a very healthy development. Okay, no, I could see that because it's just the other side, the other opinion, like the other side of the coin, I guess he's pointing out. Yeah, 
That's what he keeps doing over and over and over again. Well, frankly, maybe that's what he sees as his role. And it's pretty valuable if you've got a whole bunch of people that are being utterly respectful to whatever you say. Maybe you do need someone to go, really, with this? Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably good. Well, she wants to be introduced to Reverend Graham, who is in the country. And Michael Aideen says he needs time to think about that and then thinks for like three seconds. How about an invitation to preach at All Saints Chapel? And a private lunch. And then he puts this very delicately. We cannot be seen, you cannot be seen endorsing his, he thinks, he doesn't say performances, he (laughs) says crusades as the head of the Church of England. Now, I want you to watch Philip in the background. When Chris Graham, my husband, is upset, he waggles his foot because all his words aren't coming out. So the energy goes to his foot and he waggles and Philip is waggling his freaking foot, which made me laugh. And I actually stopped that, went and got my husband and played it. <laughs> and he's like, oh no. So yes, he returns, Michael Aideen, with a little surprise of his own. Oh, like as if he'd forgotten. No, he didn't forget. He was just dreading saying this. <laughs> the Duke of Windsor has a request to come to England. Philip's like, denied. <laughs> to write a book says Michael Aideen, what about? And then Philip says one of the funniest things in a dry voice, how to be a truly great king, a guidebook. (laughs) (laughs) But Elizabeth says, okay, and Philip says no. And they kind of do, I thought this was cute. They do this little back and forth where he says no and she says yes. I mean, we all know who's going to get the last word in, right? But they Mm -hmm. both go at it. He's like, no, yes, no. Yes. Poor Michael Adine. This new acceptance of Philip's input, his poor head. He looks like he's at a tennis match. Like, I don't know. I mean, he knows who's going to be the last word, but he's like, why am I in this room? Why am I in this room? It's so hilarious. Um, so anyway, he's going to stay, the Duke, if he comes with his friend in Sussex, which is an hour and a half train ride from London. Okay, good. The more out of sight, the better. The end. Incidentally, did you know that that is the favorite title for Prince Harry, the morning of his wedding? They think he's going to be named the Duke of Sussex. Really? And that's easy enough to say, but poor old Meghan Markle is now going to be, say this, I don't even know, the Duchess of Sussex? Hard to say. The Duchess of Sussex. Yes, it's very different. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that is tough. I was looking at Ladbrokes of London, which is a um, betting site to see if there's betting going on. And there doesn't seem to be betting going on about the title, but there does seem to be betting on who's going to design her wedding dress and... The name of Catherine's third child is also up for betting. You can put money on it. Oh, are there contenders? Well, the two top ones now, since they don't know if it's a boy or a girl, um, Alice and Arthur. Oh, I happen to like Alice. It was my middle name. So let's go with Alice. So I guess it's resolved back in Buckingham Palace. We're going to go someplace else. There's a long shot of a very impressive building and a couple cars outside. And another card pops up. Wadden Hall, Buckinghamshire. Captured German War Documents Publication Unit. This house was an outpost of the more famous Bletchley Park Codebreaker Intelligence Compound. So from this house that we are seeing, um, the intelligence service used to send messages out to its agents in the field that were over top secret clearance. They were called ultra clearance. So you can see why it's got all these records now. That's just like the home of the secrets. (laughs) Well, it's a good place. It's kind of fortified. It's a very strong building that actually dates back to the 11th century. It goes way, way back. Although now it's apartments. Oh, I'm sorry. Flats. Luxury flats. (laughs) 
So you could live there. Actually, I was like, oh, I wonder how much they cost. So I'll put a couple links. You can see inside some of them. The gatehouse is up for sale. I think it's a uh, 500,000 pounds. Cool. Very Let's charming. open a Patreon and see if we can get that going. <laughs> I bet it's really quiet. We could have a studio there. So Margaret Lambert, who is a real person, a real historian, I will link you to her obituary. She opens a box and it says closed across the front of a file. So to the boss, it goes. We're always taking things to our boss in this episode. <laughs> And she makes her case. Look, you know, as historians, we have a duty to publish the truth, no exceptions. Otherwise, what are we doing? Protecting Nazis. And the boss says we're protecting something else. The monarchy. Peace, probably. The American is framed in the mirror, by the way. I always left those framed shots. (laughs) Was the third guy French? Yes. Every nation in the Allies, and I want to say the Russians too, had sent experts to deal with these papers. Mm-hmm. So the, these should all be well-respected historians from their own countries. And this was a special elevated type of assignment. Mm-hmm. Well, she's so these- more than qualified. She had a doctorate from the London School of Economics. She spoke fluent German. So she was often put in to have tea with some of the POWs and try to get information from them. I wish she had it like her own show. she was a university professor and an author and an editor what a great life she had yeah i liked her a lot so basically when she this margaret lambert has an opinion about something it is an informed opinion it is a well-respected opinion so you'll notice her boss is not really dismissing her he just says my hands are tied on this one Mm -hmm. and she has a little bit of news for him too the american in question, can make an end run around this prohibition because guess what happened? A duplicate file was sent to the Americans after the war. Incidentally, they did not send that to the French or the Russians, by the way. The Russians especially because they were not really um, trusting the Russians after the war. (laughs) Their commitment to being our allies. We know how that ends up, right? The Cold War. So, well, so anyway, the American guy will just publish their copy. The end. Done. So they have a plan. And we're on a train and David is on that train. He's racing through the countryside and he's giving a voiceover of a letter that he's writing to his darling peaches to Wallace. And he's talking about his doll and not very hopeful travels and his arrival. And we get to see it as it's happening. And he exaggerates just a little bit. But he is just a horrible person. You know, like he talks about how horrible the trip was when he's traveling in a first class velvet interior train car he talks about how the company on the boat was just dreadful like common people were always asking me to hang out like bleh I know you think that's horrible like whatever you know what maybe if you changed your freaking outlook on life you might actually not be as dismal of a human being (laughs) maybe he refers to quote a large group of supporters cheered and removed their hats like one guy removed his knitted beanie (laughs) It was three people and they I think those were soccer team scarves or school scarves they had on because they were all matching and he took his hat off his like his stocking cap and that was it. (laughs) So he says we arrived at Fruity's rather drab little house somewhere in Sussex like what you see here on the screen is not his actual house. His real house is gray. It's also for sale and um, it has at least 15 bedrooms. So yes this shack how does Fruity stand it? (laughs) I know, right? Well, he was um, the equerry to David when he was the Prince of Wales. And then again, when he was 
King Edward VIII. So they go back, way back. He was the best man at their wedding. Well, unlike all his other friends, Fruity never did have money and he never did have a title or anything. Um, So they were actually kind of genuinely good friends. He also hates Wallace, by the way, in real life. But Wallace isn't here. Hooray. We don't have to deal with that. There is a point where your friend is marrying someone you don't like and you just have to let it happen Mm -hmm. to keep the friendship, you know? So yeah, Fruity can't stand Wallace, just so you know. Uh, It doesn't come up, but I'm just saying. Um, So background number two, I wanted to tell you about. When we come into the house, we see Mrs. Fruity. We have met her mama on the History Chicks. Baba, as we hear her called when he greets her, was the daughter of the Gilded Age Chicago heiress Mary Leiter from episode nine. I love Mary Leiter. Yeah, uh, she became... The Vice Reign of India. I mean, this is an extraordinarily rich Chicago department store heiress who married into the aristocracy for love in this case. Yeah. So um, all the money, the house in Sussex, etc., came from Mrs. Fruity. <laughs> Mrs. Fruity. <laughs> and all the rank, too. And she was called Baba, Baba Sahib, because when she was born in India... Her papa was the Viceroy of India, so she was the baby boss, Baba Sahib. So cute. Baba is also 18 years younger than her husband. I don't know why that... I just was like, at first I thought, is this his daughter? Nope. Oh, good digging there, Beckett. Okay, the real reason why we're here is this dinner party. We're going to have this dinner party. We're going to make a plan. He's with his co-conspirators and the real purpose and the real consequences and real plans for David's visit are discussed. Now, the man who talks first, I legitimately thought was the butler from Downton Abbey, speaking to the Gilded Age, but no, it's not him. So he says, job hunting might get David expelled and povertyized. I know that's not a real word. <laughs> like he might not only lose his ability to be in the country, but they might also cut off his um, allowance. So everybody has to be really careful. And he lists some supporters that might host a dinner or go to one, like a social support campaign. And there's Viscounts and a Marquess and a Baron and the American ambassador and the foreign secretary. I mean, he mentions some notables, Cecil Beaton, Noah Howard. <laughs> That's a good stable. One of his supporters, by the way, I just wanted to say Lord Beaverbrook had a newspaper empire. So he would have been a very effective person to have afterward. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like if they succeeded in getting him into a position, that newspaper friend would have been very good at um, shaping public opinion in his favor. Mm -hmm. So David and his friends have it all going on. But what's happening back at Windsor, there's three cars that drive up the driveway to Windsor Castle and Elizabeth and Philip are watching our mystery guests arrive. Philip is trying to criticize them, but... Elizabeth is very excited for these visitors. Philip doesn't even want to go. Like, can't you just make up some excuse? Say I'm off sinning somewhere. She's irritated at him. No. Like when your spouse tries to get out of a work thing, you know, of yours, and you're just like, seriously, we talked about this, and you said you can go, and now you're punking. No, we're going. And Philip is just as big a snob as Uncle David. I'm telling you what. He calls Billy Graham, quote, a door-to-door salesman in a hideous, shiny suit. Again, with the door-to-door salesman. Poor Billy Graham. He's just got a stereotyped reputation over there, at least with the uh, monarchy. (laughs) The Fuller Brush man was kind of an American icon, and I think it was just easy to remember. Fuller Brush is still a company. I mean, they don't do door-to-door sales, but they still sell brushes and vacuum cleaners. You can buy one at Bed Bath & Beyond. Nice. 
Um, Lucille Ball, another subject from the History Chicks, was actually in a movie called The Fuller Brush Girl. You just said that, and I'm like, I should remember that. And that I got nothing. <laughs> wow. Can we talk about Elizabeth's outfit here? It's a yellow dress, which isn't too bad, but this hat she has on, it looks like yellow saran wrap with plastic flowers stuck to it. It's like a cone on the back of her head. It's the most horrendous thing I've ever seen. I don't know, because, okay, if we're in church, the hat that the queen mom has on looks like a giant purple crepe mushroom. It's glorious. Oh, yes. Glorious. So let's just go to church. At All Saints Chapel in Windsor, just like Adine had planned, a small congregation of people and the queen mom's hat are listening to Billy Graham preach and the congregants have different reactions. Well, Philip is impatient for one thing. He doesn't want to be here. I don't think he, I don't know if he's a very religious man in the first place, Um, but he doesn't want to be there at all. He's irritated at this like fixation. Philip is almost spread out in the pew like a kid would be like oh my god I can't believe I have to sit through this and the queen mom is very polite she is well brought up but is also equally not buying the shtick. No. Like she's listening like you would go to someone else's child's middle school choir concert that's her demeanor the queen mom keeps looking over at Elizabeth like are you buying this what this guy's selling and Elizabeth is transfixed on the reverend. I know she's paying attention, but there's no there there in the speech. But, I, you know, maybe we're not supposed to think about that. He's talking about being a Christian and what it means, right? He, he references Colossians 127. It says, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That, that's what he's preaching on, what it means to be a Christian. I'm a Christian. Or how does she say Christian? She loved this sermon so much. She's taking that private meeting that Adine had set up with Reverend Graham, and they're going to discuss faith, her role, her loneliness in his experience and gifts as a speaker. That's the first thing we hear when she comes in. She's almost kind of giddy. Um, <laughs> about meeting him at all. She praises his speaking voice, which admittedly, he's got good delivery and um, a nice little go at that accent. I think that actor did a good job. And, um, you know, also praises his, what, uh, Instagram followers or whatever. (laughs) Your numbers are so good. (laughs) Well, Paul Sparks, who's the actor, he's actually from Oklahoma. So maybe he naturally had an accent. Um, If anybody was looking at it and going, where have I seen him before? He is Thomas Yates in House of Cards. So that's a pretty popular show. He's also in The Greatest Showman, which I haven't seen yet. I think that the queen, I put fan queening. I know you hate the term fangirl, but that's what she was doing. She was just gushing at him. And she says, in an increasingly complex world, we all need certainty and you provide it. And of course, Billy Graham being Billy Graham, he's like, no, that's the scriptures. That's God. That's not me. So humble. Well, he seems like a nice man. <laughs> um, understandably, here's the thing. She most liked just listening to advice kind of from the outside of her religious corporation, because there's a lot of political nonsense that goes along with what she has to do. And it was nice to just sit there and um, just be a person instead of having to be, quote, the head of the church. Right. Well, I think she's bonding with him because he is, like her, um, the head of a church. So I think she feels like he's a peer in some regards. That's good. She doesn't have that. She's not hanging around with other queens at all. Well, she does make a point that all the archbishops are under her. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. Hey, you know what? Billy Graham would not have taken that meeting because he did not take meetings with women without his wife present. It, he it was he was so famous for it. It's called the Billy Graham rule. And um, there's someone in our government who still uses that. We won't take a meeting in a room alone with a woman. Which, in my opinion shows a giant lack of faith in yourself and paints every woman you see as an insatiable temptress and makes your wife your jailer. And his wife was there. She was in the building, but she did not come into that meeting. So this whole meeting is fabricated. You don't know um, that it ever happened. Although Queen Elizabeth and Billy Graham did become friends and they were friends for a very long time. I think they probably still are. So where has his wife been this whole time? So I'm guessing in the world of the crown, she has been with the queen mom. And there's a story about the queen mom that I thought was very nice. She was actually with Billy Graham, not his wife, but I can imagine this playing out here too, where drinks were offered. And then she sensed that Billy Graham was uncomfortable with the concept of drink drinks. And so she requested, as if she had done it her whole life, that she would have tomato juice, of course. She made it seem as if that is what always happened at this time, is that we enjoyed um, vegetable squeezings (laughs) that aren't fermented, which is not what usually happens. I would say usually the potato juice is quite old. (laughs) And sometimes in the tomato juice. Yes. So I thought that was very nice um, of the Queen Mom. So let's imagine that she and Mrs. Billy Graham are off having tomato juice. Tomato juice. (laughs) Whatever they're doing, uh, it's a long visit. They finish their visit. Elizabeth is upstairs in her room looking out the window again, and she's very introspective as she's watching the Reverend and Mrs. Graham leave. You know what she's thinking? She's thinking, dang, that guy looks like Beckett's (laughs) brother-in-law. Sure. Philip kind of comes into the background and he just looks at her like he just doesn't get it. He sees that she's I don't want to say she's smitten because it's I don't think it's it's not that kind of a thing. But he just does not understand why his wife is at all interested in this man at all. We're going to go over to 10 Downing Street. Macmillan is giving a monologue about Billy Graham's crusades and He doesn't like them because it sounds like we're heathens, he says. But the head historian, that big guy that got the papers from Margaret Lambert, he drives up and arrives there and he needs to meet with Macmillan about the mystery. They call it the filing question. Well, again, briefcase equals password because he gets out of the taxi and walks right by the policeman who does look at him, but doesn't make a move and just lets him walk into 10 Downing Street. So again, I say, time travelers, make sure to take a briefcase. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, John Wheeler Bennett, this guy, the actual real guy, he was the official biographer for King George VI. So he's, this guy is, maybe they knew him? The policeman that stands in front of Downing Street. (laughs) What policemen don't know biographers? I mean, maybe Macmillan knows him and we can even extrapolate that perhaps the secretary has been primed to expect him. So I could see letting him in the inner sanctum, but letting him in the front door. I don't know. I guess they're going to say, hey, a man's going to arrive at this o'clock. His name is this. But no, he didn't ask his name. He could have been any Joe off the street. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But Macmillan knows that he's representing historians because he calls them your troublesome historians. And Wheeler Bennett is like committed historians, principled historians. They get principled, buddy. Do you? 
this is what I was thinking. Like, oh, who's the heathen here? Let's go look at the file. And they've got the green file and they take it away. Yeah. Hey, this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens to that file. And now a brief intermission. back the duke of windsor is going to go to his big dinner party he's going to meet with his plotting team of old friends and find him a job a final act that uses his unique experience he is getting more open with his disdain for his family isn't he and also he calls everybody plotters not plotters like we're slow with our big feet no plotters like a big joke um treason abounds he says he even calls them a council of war so that old world war ii poster loose lips sink ships i think it's talk like that in a jokey party atmosphere that is going to bring him down just put a pin in that for <laughs> He walks into that room with so much confidence and it looks like he's having a really good time, a heck of a lot more fun than he had back in Paris playing cards with Wallace's friends, that's for sure. So they have three ideas for him. Uh, something in the military. Yes, absolutely. I And he goes into his credentials about, you know, governor of the Bahamas, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Then someone brings up perhaps with the board of trade and he's like, mm, trade. Mm, that's grubby. That's like profit, right? That's yucky. Let's move on. What about the diplomatic service? Ooh, fancy, fancy, fancy. Vida Sackville West at the dinner party. Yes, we'll cover her at some point on the History Chicks. Suggests, well, the Americans have these, quote, roving ambassadors now. They're actually called ambassadors at large. Well, now... That is right up his alley. He loves the thought of being sort of a wise man to the world. Of course, that would appeal to him. The chance to bloviate to a captive audience and also have the drinks paid for. Come on. <laughs> so he's very excited. We're going to get another voiceover catch up letter to Wallace as David sends his team off and gives her his assessment of Billy Graham's crusade. Yeah, he cannot be happy for five minutes. So, yes. He's anticipating success from that meeting. He's kind of high up that meeting. But yet he uses words like crusading showman from Charlotte. He called the conversation that Billy Graham and, quote, Shirley Temple probably had banal, smug, full of hypocrisy, a gruesome occasion. Mm. But at the end of it all, he says, today was a day worth living. Because <laughs> he got to see his friends. He got to be the center of attention, sit at the head of the table and was told that he'd make a really good host. Macmillan is going to meet with the queen to inform her of the formerly suppressed, soon to be released, damning Marburg document. And I'm not completely understanding the blocking here. So what I'm kind of thinking is Macmillan is headed off to the queen and Aideen was sent to fetch the queen mom. I guess that's where everybody's going. He says primed and ready to Aideen. So I guess, does that mean he's given an introduction as to what's about to come? I'm not really sure of what this whole thing is. Yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure. But the next thing we're going to see is Aideen and the queen mom coming out of their rooms and walking with great purpose to meet with Elizabeth about the Marburg files. And she and Aideen try to explain to Elizabeth 
the situation. Okay, so she does say, of course, this was always going to come back to haunt us. And they tag team for a little bit, like those annoying couples at a dinner party where like the husband tries to tell a story and the wife keeps interrupting with like, no, actually her skirt was purple. Like, just uh, shut up. Just let him tell the story. So why don't you tell it? Please do sit down. And she restrains herself and very politely asks him to sit down and he begins to tell the story. So what we saw at the beginning, there is a captured German soldier. We've seen von Loesch before in the Jeep, but now we actually see the scene playing out. His boss, Hitler's translator, had told him to destroy a whole bunch of critical papers. And you do see that happening. People are gleefully burning a giant pile of papers in the courtyard. But von Loesch has a secret strategy. There are some critical files, one of which actually has to do with the Russians, if we want to go into that. It doesn't go into it in the show. So yes, the Windsor file, the Marburg file we're going to talk about is in there. But also there's some information about Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. The Russians always maintained that those little states came willingly into Russia. And in that box was evidence that they hadn't. Yeah, he turned over a lot of information, but we don't, like you said, we only are going to focus on the Windsor file, but he's got to get a lot of important information to get any kind of deal with the Americans and the British. Well, and you know, you're hedging your bets by putting in Russian stuff too. So, <laughs> and who knows? I don't know if there's French things in there or not, but he would be wise to save enough stuff so that somebody saves you, you know? <laughs> Um, so we see him and his travels into the forest. He takes off his own overcoat to wrap the box in, I guess for waterproofing. I don't know how well that does, but I'm frankly surprised he could even find that spot again because it was in the dark of night with a little torch at a weird angle and he's in a hurry and he's panicking. Um, but evidently he made some landmarks in his mind because he was able to take those soldiers right back to where he'd buried it. Yeah, that surprised me too. Because he's he's in a hurry, right? Maybe he knew the forest for some reason. I don't know why. That actually is the grounds of a country estate. So maybe he's been there. I don't know. So back at story time, Aideen explains that these files that everybody is so grim about detail the relationship of the Nazi high command with HRH, the Duke of Windsor. He tells her, yes. England has tried to keep it secret, but the Americans are about to release it. And the Queen Mom says, this is the man that you inexplicably let back into the country. I hope you have a strong stomach. She didn't know. It's not her fault if no one told her. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. That seems like a needless remark, really. <laughs> Maybe she just wanted to feel like she knew more or something. There are three or four alternating scenes here between Queen Elizabeth um, reading and then David at the foreign office and David with friends celebrating their success. Um, it's a little bit confusing. We've also got um, one shot back with the original translator typing. I can't imagine that it took her that long to read it. <laughs> Well, and that meeting at the foreign office, we actually hear about later. We don't actually see the whole thing. I thought it was very interesting that everyone in the foreign office stood up very respectfully mm -hmm. um, and bowed their heads to assorted degrees. And that the foreign secretary, Selwyn Lloyd, who had been mentioned before at the first David party, um, said to him, you have loyal and persistent friends, sir. Mm -hmm. So they are making headway on his behalf. Yeah, it's working out just like he planned. It's all unfolding just like he planned and hoped for. So at the very end, David is toasting with his friends wearing his smoking jacket and Elizabeth finishes her document that took her forever to read. And she sits back in her chair and her face is just worried. Her brow is furrowed. I like the way they frame that. It is kind of a far off shot of Queen Elizabeth 
at her desk and there is so much symmetry and order. The pictures on either side are the same. She is right in the middle of the frame. It is a very um, orderly, mm, I don't know, conservative establishment type of pose. Mm -hmm. It was very serious. That's the tone I got. Which is, I mean, it's a very serious moment. Yeah, it was beautifully framed. I liked I liked that a great deal. So we're going to get another voiceover letter from David to Wallace. And he's going to tell her about his options and the plan to get the Queen's approval. Because he's going to need it to move forward. He gets ready. He's going to go to Buckingham Palace to get that permission. A side note on the valet. His name is Sidney Johnson. He is from the Bahamas, and he started in that job at the age of 16 um, when David was the governor of the Bahamas, and he stayed in service as his valet for 32 years. I love that. He was in the first scene when they were singing Happy Birthday to Trooper. (laughs) He's one of those ones that's like, my life has taken a turn. What is happening to me? (laughs) So Wallace, having read the letter that we're hearing, is so happy. Like, whoo, keep him busy. There's the light at the end of the tunnel. I do love this actress a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She acted a lot with just her face. You know, she reads the letter and she kind of holds it to her and looks out the window like, oh, this is wonderful. Maybe she thought it was her escape plan, too. Well, it kind of is. If he's Mm -hmm. occupado, she can actually, like, you know, lay down Mm -hmm. (laughs) the burden. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what it's been like, you know, how, well, some families when there's a lot of chaos and then dad goes on a business trip, like everything calms down a little bit because the dynamic changes and then dad comes back. So here dad is gone on the business trip and she's got the whole house to herself. (laughs) Except for all those dogs who I think sleep on her bed when he's not there. She has some kind of plastic sheet thing that she puts over the bed because, you know, pooping and peeing. (laughs) (laughs) And so they sleep with her on the plastic sheet on her bed. When dad's away on his business trip, all the kids are, that's what they're doing. That's right. Just like the kids, they climb into bed with mom. That's true. (laughs) So he um, can't resist another dig at the establishment and calls Buckingham Palace that miserable mausoleum. He didn't want to be the king in the first place. I'm just telling you right now. And now he's all hardened against it. So. Well, he hadn't been back very much in the last 21 years, and he went to his brother's funeral. Um, I think he had a couple other funerals in there, but he hadn't really been back for any extended period of time and not for anything positive. Right. So, I mean, it was like a business trip for him. He was trying to get business going, which is very different than what he'd come back to do before, you know, funerals and stuff. So So when he gets out of his roles, he pauses before going in, you know, that face, he made this face like, wow, I can't believe I'm back here. It looked dreadful almost. Is that what you read into it? I don't know. I just am not giving him very much of the benefit of the doubt um, right now because it's like you can't do a single thing without being snide about it. And after a while, I think snide becomes the most part of your personality after you've trained it for so long. I see. So David finally gets his meeting with the queen. They have a little small talk and he lays out his plans for her approval. She listens and then she denies it and tells him exactly why. Now, see, she barely keeps her countenance at the beginning of this meeting. And he, of course, does not know she's read the file at all. In fact, he might and probably doesn't know the file even exists. You should note that the file is a German one. It is a German secret file. It is told from their side, their perceptions of things, their hopes for things. I think that's important to say. So um, one thing notable for the small talk portion of our meeting is he looked around and he said, 
Ah, French gray. That color was me. And they have a moment of realizing like, oh, (laughs) he was the king. Yeah, exactly. He said he hadn't been back to that room before. Yeah, he had left his mark on it. And part of me thought she's probably looking at the walls and thinking, I need to paint this room. (laughs) Yeah. You know, she was willing to go and talk about the book, this fictitious book that he's supposedly writing. So that's how she opened the conversation. And he actually explained that he's looking for a job, a way to serve the country. And she comes back with, you had your chance to serve this country, the greatest chance. You gave it up. Now think about that. She would not yet be the queen. If he hadn't left... Yes, she was after her father, but her father was already dead. She's still his heiress, and she always would have been, um, unless Wallace had a child or whatever. But um, So she would not yet be the queen, and for all we know, could still be in Malta. <laughs> she could. Wouldn't her life be very different? But it's not. She's sitting there. And he has believed the story that he's been telling all these years because he says, I gave it up because the way my wife was treated, not because I didn't want to serve the country. Like, that's it. My, I didn't like the way they treated my wife. So I walked away. Really? No, that's kind of awkward, though, because Elizabeth and her mama and papa are the main villains with regard to the poor treatment of Wallace. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's a little bit awkward. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and also awkward, she has read the file. And as far as she's concerned, he wants to betray his country. So yes, there's a bit of guilt like, oh, yes, you're right about Wallace. And then like, wait a minute. (laughs) Hold on, (laughs) dirtbag. Why am I feeling guilty? Yeah. So he explains a little bit that, you know, before I came to bother you, I cleared it with the government first and they're okay with this. Here are my three choices. Ambassador to France, special liaison to the Board of Trade, or high commissioner with the Commonwealth Relations Office, which he says, oh, the practical side of diplomacy. Entertaining, mostly. (laughs) And that's the job he likes. It's the party job. She does say, I'm sure you do those all very well, but I know about your, quote, relationship with Nazi Germany. And there are a few accusations that she levels at him. So I kind of wanted to go through them one by one and talk about them. Accusation one, that he was going to wait out the war in safety and then, when Germany won, take over again as the puppet king. Let's talk about that. There was a kidnapping plot by Germany, by the way. That's one reason Winston Churchill literally sent him to the Bahamas as governor in the first place. It's not that David was plotting to be the puppet king. Why the director had David character, you know, Mm -hmm. say that stuff earlier is to get us thinking he's some kind of top level manipulator, you know, war council, you know, plotting treason. No, he did associate with some sketchy people Mm -hmm. when left to his own devices, but he is an easily manipulated person. Definitely. And in the real file, there was information that it was a kidnapping plot that he didn't know. I mean, that was apparent in the real file, but in this television version, you know, he's the mastermind of that whole thing. Yeah, they're just not giving you the backstory. So if you're thinking, oh, my God, he betrayed, you know, kidnapping implies to me that the victim is not a willing participant. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> and also, I'm going to just add that bumbling doofuses like him are maybe more dangerous than calculating villains. Yeah. Because you don't have any idea what they're going to do. Anyway, accusation number two. The Fuhrer's desire for peace was in complete agreement with your point of view. Which isn't actually wrong. Right. Because he did want peace. And he felt back then that 
the way to peace, so they didn't have to rehash everything from World War One, was to align themselves with Germany. There's a lot of people in Great Britain who, at the beginning, I mean, worldwide, thought that Hitler was on a right track because they didn't know any of the dark stuff that was going on. And unfortunately, David didn't get off that train fast enough. <laughs> well, and, you know, he has a good point. World War One, the Great War, as what they called it still, was horrible. It decimated a whole generation, his generation. And honestly, anything to keep it from happening again, you really have to try, right? Mm -hmm. And he reminds her that Hitler and his people were once their friends. And it was true that Russia was actually seen as more the enemy. Because think about what happened right after the Russian Revolution. Like, who toppled the monarchy there? I mean, that was seen as the bigger threat. So why alienate a nation that's in between us and Russia? Why don't we just be friends? And they hadn't yet become the monsters that we, from here, or even from Elizabeth's point, you know, after the war, we know about the monsters. But mm -hmm. before the war, people didn't. And the British aristocracy was very German by blood. They had intermarried all over Germany. I don't really blame him for kind of this optimistic view that maybe making Germany less isolated could have avoided the war. I mean, whole books have been written on that subject. I'll tell you that. I think he's using it as a little dig, like a little, or maybe not even him, maybe the director, mm -hmm. maybe not even David, is telling us, you know, you'll notice there's a little mirrored situation in that if they hadn't pushed him away, if they had maybe kept him a little closer, none of this mischief would have happened in the first place. It only happened because you left him alone and didn't let him participate, just like Germany. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. You put him as governor of the Bahamas, which a place he did not want to go to in the first place. And once the war was over, they could have given him another job. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, he could have been could've. a diplomat somewhere. He could have had some type of role, and then he wouldn't be at this position where he was plotting behind their backs. Well, and they could have sent someone like Charteris or any number of diplomats that could have been like, you know what, that action you're contemplating is not a good idea, and here's why. But they didn't let anyone talk to him. Mm -hmm. And so there was nobody to tell him it was a bad idea, whatever mm -hmm. he did. he He's very convincing here. And he actually said, you know, peace was all that mattered to me. You're right. So the Fuhrer and I, desiring peace, Correct. Absolutely correct. And our people will never believe these accusations in this file. They'll never believe these fabrications is what he called them. And, you know, you got to have more faith in the people. They'll see that this is German propaganda. And he's very convincing. Oh, yeah. I don't think he expected her to say no, first off. I mean, he thought he was going to waltz in there just like the rest of his trip had gone. It was going to go just according to plan. He'd tell her, she'd say, that's fine, delightful. Enjoy your new position. But now he's got his back up against the wall and he's coming out fighting. And his true personality is kind of showing here. Before he was just like, you know, chit chat, gray walls. And now he's like, yeah, I sided with Hitler, but, you know, no one's going to believe it. You, you go ahead, print that. No one's going to believe it. But I don't think he's saying meanly, do your worst, no one will believe it. I think he's saying we can all trust the people. They're going to understand that this is not real. I think he's really genuinely saying to her, you also should know this isn't real. I, I don't know if we're reading this differently or not, but I I think he has a point in, in both situations. I really do. Well, I do, too. And I think um, we covered this in the Wallace Simpson episode, I think. I think we did it very well. Oh, yeah. That there's a lot of dimension to these people. And there's two 
easily to see ways, the things that happened to them. You can easily see it from his point of view and you can easily see it from the monarchy's point of view. Right. Yeah. So, but in this particular scene, I'm just, I'm going to hold tight that he came out fighting. He was snotty to her. I think he thought he was going to change her mind and he wasn't expecting it. So he brought out the big gun. Well, I think that's okay. Cause she, I mean, he didn't expect any kind of accusation. And then here she comes up with this like file mm-hmm. thing. And so I, you know, I don't know what else you would expect him to do, but like disabuse her of that thought. Like, oh no, you're obviously getting the wrong end of this stick. Here's this, here's the thing. You know, I think he just explained. I don't think he was being snotty. Actually, he's been snotty in the past and he certainly will be again. But I think in this scene, I think he was just defending himself. Yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. At this point, I agree. Okay. At this point, I totally agree. I was totally lost at the end. (laughs) Elizabeth has a lot of thinking to do. She's in her room. She's reading her Bible. Philip comes in and they have a discussion about Christian forgiveness in general and about forgiving David specifically. She's really sort of tortured about that meeting with Uncle David. Mm -hmm. She really is. She doesn't know what she thinks anymore. You know, she, she was so sure. She read the file. She was full of anger. And then she went in and heard the other side. I, I have to admire her for actually being conflicted mm-hmm. because she should be because she did get the other side of the story. And now she's got a decision to make. I do like also this new dynamic between Elizabeth and Philip, though I do like how when she says she wants to talk about forgiveness, he says, oh, Christ, what have I done now? <laughs> no, not you. She says, I want to see about after all this time, maybe it's time to forgive Uncle David. And he is very anti, very anti. And then to convince her he means business, he says, it's not often I say this. So perhaps if I do, you will take it seriously. And he laughs like these words are literally coming out of my mouth. I can't even believe this. But he tells her she should ask Lassels about Uncle David. Like you tell him what you're thinking about doing and you just see what he says. Yeah, that that was a good move because, I mean, you have to remember Philip's own family, his sisters married Nazi officers. So he's as entwined with the Nazi party, you know, with his family, too. But if he's seeing it as David making huge mistakes and siding with the wrong side, it's got to be something serious. And he's bringing out his big guns. Go talk to Lassels. Well, I mean, he does point out Lassels was there. Lassels was David's private secretary. So if anybody knows the whole picture, it's him. I don't know what Philip knows. I mean, you know, you're right. He does have three sisters married to Nazis, but I don't know if they even talk anymore or where he might have heard something. The Thursday Club. I mean, anywhere, I suppose. People are willing to talk in front of him more than in front of the Queen, I guess. But whatever he thinks it is, he knows Queen Elizabeth has to hear it officially from some kind of eyewitness. So he says, you know what? Go see him on the lowdown, you know, unofficially for sherry or tea or Human blood, whatever that monster drinks. <laughs> it's not just me, people, that thinks he's not quite wired up like other people. No, he's not. But that's what makes him so great, I think. The first episodes he was in, like especially last season, I'm like, oh, my God, I do not like this guy at all. But now every time he appears on the screen, I kind of get a little excited. I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> here's Lassels. Yes, something cool is going to happen. <laughs> well, it's like those movies from the 80s where a robot appears and has to learn how to become human. Mm-hmm. As the robot learns to become human, we fall in love with him. Oh, excellent. Yes. <laughs> so Elizabeth's going to need to go see him. Lassels is playing in his war room when a car pulls up. Elizabeth surprises him and they meet together in that war room where she asks him his opinion about her forgiving 
affidavit and Lassell's gives her the facts that were left out of the files. So I love the fact that they, and I'm not even going to say wasted because I think it's important. I like the fact that they spent the time to show us how fastidious he is about this bottle scene. He is lining things up by the millimeter. And I think I've met some model train guys like this, or maybe Civil War reenactors where the least detail is worthy of fussing over. Actually, I know a mom <laughs> like this, where if you get to her house and if you move the coaster that has been precisely placed for you, I mean, Katie barred the door. <laughs> There's going to be consequences. <laughs> um, another side note. How about this for my fastidiousness? When he sees her out the window, I've always been bothered about this, this whole entire series. She's crunching through the gravel and that will eat the heels off your shoes. It will. And I suppose she could just wear them once and then a whole staff descends to sew up the holes or whatever. But that's the detail that I'm cringing over. <laughs> well, I thought about that the last episode when they had gotten to uh, Balmoral and she was walking, crunching across the gravel. Yeah, no. I, I'm with you. I'm with you on the heels. I, I have left enough heel caps in my yard <laughs> to know that like the ground eats your shoes. <laughs> when we went to the Titanic exhibit, I lost a heel guard in the escalator going in. Oh, so we were walking through the marble floors and I had that tink, tink, tink. <laughs> oh, what else? What else? Okay, okay. I love his friend door. I wish mm -hmm. to recreate it here. So that was epic. And I love I love the little byplay, how she guesses pretty well what era it is and what battle. And I think she did. She guessed pretty well. I thought she was only off by a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, she picks up a soldier and asks about his hobby. So it's not just all business. Mm -hmm. He hates that she has picked it up, but he doesn't say anything. He hates it. You can see it in his eyes. They're so shifty. And he super hates when she puts it down in a random place. <laughs> Well, that tiny little figurine had so much meaning for him because she's looking at it and she's complimenting him on it. And she asked him if he had it made. And he says, no, it was a gift from your grandfather. So he's had these for a long time. There's a lot of sentimental value in that battlefield. So Elizabeth lays it out to him. I think it's time to let the Duke of Windsor back into public life. So after she says that, he starts to sweat Sort of the first time we've ever seen that. And he simply says that would be a mistake. Yeah, he kind of really stutters that out because it's he's trying to find the right words. Remember the last time that he's like, well, you could go that way, but you should try this. He doesn't even try that, you know, that strategy here. He just says that would be a mistake. Don't even go there. And then we get Lassell's voiceover. And we see exactly how David got wrapped up with the Nazis when he was king and how Wallace was involved in that um, and their visit to Nazi Germany and secrets that he may have shared with Hitler. Lassels lays it all on the line. Now, I just want to say that all the visuals you see while he's talking illustrate his version of the story. So what we're seeing you and I, the viewer, is not necessarily reality. It is an illustration of the narrative that Lassels is telling. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense because I think of that as like kind of like a theme to this particular episode, that history is only as true as the person who's telling it. Right. Yeah. So I completely understand. So he does have different points, accusations, again, although he has a lot more than Elizabeth did last time. Number one, his friends were of a different type. He surrounded himself basically with sketchy courtiers. Now that's 
sort of true. He mentions, in particular, the Duke of Saxe-Coburg. Now, this is a man who had been also the Duke of Albany, and he renounced his English title to keep his German one. So there you go. So yes, he was surrounding himself with a different type of person. Accusation number two, he shared classified documents with the Duchess of Windsor. Now, probably true, but in a different way than you see it. He left crap all over the place. The box was never locked. He didn't monitor who went in the room. Anyone could have gotten anything out at any time. Footman, valet, kitchen maid, anyone could have been up there. You know, he didn't keep track of his stuff. And they did stop putting sensitive documents in his box. Now, did he have little secret meetings where he pulled all these papers out and sat with Wallace before the fire contemplating what and who they were going to share these with? Did Wallace sneak in in the night? I mean, Probably not. He was a very careless steward of secrets. Mm -hmm. He was a blabber and a lever about of things. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. He didn't take the job as seriously as even Elizabeth did on her first day. I mean, he just was really irreverent about it. So accusation number three. Wallace was herself sleeping with the German ambassador von Ribbentrop, which, as we said in the Wallace Simpson episodes, has been much rumored but never, ever been proven or even, a word I can't think of, probableized. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like a word for that. Um, even, you know, pushed into the realm of probability. Now, it's always going to be a possibility. There's a possibility that I've been to the moon. Is it a low possibility? Yes, it is. <laughs> so everything's possible, but probable, I'm not sure that anyone really thinks. Like, it's a scurrilous rumor, nothing more. You should also know that in his diary, Lassell's hated Wallace Simpson. He referred to her as, quote, a shop-soiled American with a voice like a rusty saw. And you should also note that he referred to his service with David as the Prince of Wales's secretary as, quote, wasting the best years of my life. So he is also not an impartial deliverer <laughs> any more than the German file was. I'm just saying, yes, we are getting a version of the truth. Mm -hmm. He's finally showing some humanity, I guess, though it's probably not the best half, right? <laughs> so the Ribbentrop scene you see where she's like hobnobbing with, we assume, a German spy is, like I said, an illustration of what he's saying. That's not what our character Wallace Simpson is really doing, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Accusation four. The Duke and Duchess visited Mr. Hitler and a plot was hatched to, quote, betray and dethrone your late father. They did visit. They did. David was seriously under the impression that a friendly visit could help to avert war. He's not the only British official to have gone. Can we just say that? I know. Just, I sort of hate that the Crown is painting this as some kind of nefarious plan. Yeah. Um, it was not a great choice. Like I said, though, no diplomat warned him about how the Nazis might use his visit, and they sure used it to great effect for propaganda purposes. If you think there weren't photographers documenting every step of this situation, you would be wrong. The Nazis <laughs> knew what they had here. Yeah, you you haven't Googled uh, Wallace Simpson, Duke of Windsor, Nazis, because if you do, all those pictures come up. Mm -hmm. He had taken her there right after they had gotten married, he was still so bitter that his family didn't receive her and that she was going to be denied all these perks of being a royal that he wanted her to go on what felt like an official state visit to a country. He had connections there and he took her there. 
at that time. So yeah, he did. Yeah, there's pictures. There's no real evidence that he did all this malicious stuff that Lassels is painting right now. Just went bumbling in there like some big friendly dog with a handshake and like the happiness that finally he was giving his wife something valuable. Like, <laughs> look at all these people who are willing to give you respect, yeah. you know, um, and it was Hitler's people who wrote down that she would have made a fine queen. It wasn't Wallace that said she would be a fine queen. Mm -hmm. So um, he is guilty of being a simple dumbass, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but not a traitor necessarily. Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, they were going to kidnap him. So they're not the friends he thinks they are anyway. Mm -hmm. Accusation number five. He visited SS training camps and early versions of the concentration camps. So this is before the war, right? So what did he do? He reviewed troops, really. Mm -hmm. And he saw some prisoners of war. No scheming Nazi would show this sentimental fool any shade of a real concentration camp. Even Tommy Lassell sort of knows this one's pretty weak. Mm -hmm. He even kind of knows, well, mm. but here's the one that even I can't. And I don't maybe know enough about it. He says, accusation six, he released secret battle plans and enabled the Germans to capture Paris. He also has been known to say that continued bombing would soon make Britain ready for peace. I just don't know here. He was in the habit of just saying whatever came into his head with whoever. Um, I can't yeah. really justify it, except maybe he was trying to be jovial or make some kind of commentary that got taken wrong. Yeah, because he didn't, you know, even if he had said that, you know, continue bombing of England, he wasn't saying continued slaughter of my people will tame them. Exactly. You know what I mean? That's the implication of this whole statement, but mm -hmm. um, there's no indication that that's ex what he said. I'm not trying to defend the guy. He made a lot of mistakes and he did sympathize at the beginning of the war with the Nazis and he could have had more of a relationship. But like we said, a lot of times in the Wall Simpson episode, you got to kind of look at it from the other side too, to see if your brain can see it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the truth is probably somewhere in there. So anyway, I could see, honestly, how Lassell's saying this last thing about the bombing above all things. That was what struck her the most. I mean, she lived through that bombing. They saw the devastation. They saw the people. They saw the blood. And I'm sure she and Margaret were very afraid that whole time. Like, they weren't evacuated. They were symbols of strength. Their job as teenage girls was to show that they weren't afraid and not to run away. And I, you know, I don't know if that took a toll or what, but like the fact, quote fact, that her uncle advocated the continued bombing of his own people, that would have made her very hard. Mm -hmm. And I also think when he brought up, you know, overthrowing her father, that would have struck her very deeply, not for herself, but for her father. That would mean that he would have been overthrown and good things don't happen to kings who are overthrown. So Elizabeth has a lot to think about. She's taking a long stroll outside, you know, just to clear her head. And just she just looks like she's thinking. I think she mentions this later that they they dismissed all the rumors that they had heard because this is Uncle David. Come on now. Mm -hmm. So having those illusions now, you know, keep in mind how the show wants you to see these things. Having those illusions ripped from her kind of exposes some pain. I mean, you know, betrayal is not easily forgivable. Yeah. Now, I love how this is framed. Billy Graham is talking to us through the magic no-cord TV. 
I love it. And he says, God sees how you really are deep inside. And that's really getting to her because as we know from the first half, she really wants to be a good Christian and Christians forgive, right? But she has just heard some stuff that she's not going to be able to let go of. And there is a giant conflict. And she's thinking while she's watching the television set too. Yeah, she's, this is a tough one. And I, the parting message that, that Billy Graham gives us from the cordless television set <laughs> <laughs> um, is that it doesn't really matter what your exterior says. You know, it doesn't matter your pedigree, your class, whatever your exterior says, because God can see into your heart. You can be doing all the right things, but if you're inside isn't pointing in the right direction, the outside doesn't matter at all. I wonder if I agree with that. Actually, I'm just trying to think about it philosophically if I agree with that. I think I'm more like, well, you know what? As long as you do the right thing, I don't care what happens in your head. Use the exterior you, but the interior you cares. Don't you think? Wouldn't that eat? If your inside was like really ugly and you knew it and it was mean and vicious, but your outside was like generous and kind wouldn't that be like this huge conflict in your head? No. If you never act upon your worst impulses, do they exist? You know, I guess mm -hmm. is my point. I think that was her turning point, though. Because the next thing we see is that Elizabeth has called David in to meet with him again. And she denies his request and adds an extra penalty. She does say, I was keen to help you. Enough time has passed. My personal affection for you. He knows there's a but coming. And she says, I'm paraphrasing here, like, but on balance, I think not. Also, get out <laughs> of my country. <laughs> I mean, he turns snotty then. Oh, the facade has been up of, you know, supplicant. But that peels off in about a second. Yeah. He asked her where she got this information. And was it your mother? Was it Lassell's? I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> She's like, no, I made up my own mind. And he said, you don't have a mind. What? I mean, he wasn't even nice to her. <laughs> you have no mind of your own, he said. That's why everybody likes you. Really? I would say that's called look behind you at the burning bridge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he gave his last F away right there. <laughs> he said the last royal to have a mind of his own was him. And that's why they threw me out, he said. Oh, I thought it was all about people being mean to your wife. Yeah, exactly. Which is it? Which is it? No. That was like 12 minutes ago that you just said it was just because of Wallace Simpson. So anyway, uh -huh. so he asks her also, who's worse for the country? Me with my willfulness or you with your lack of humanity? You would think that would hit her a little bit because she just spent all this time in contemplation of being human. She wanted to be human, right? But Elizabeth he does have the last word. I don't know from what reserves she draws her anger and she points it right at him and lets fly. She says, there is no possibility of my forgiving you. The question is, how on earth can you forgive yourself? Yeah, and ring that bell. There's nothing else David can do. He heads back to the train, this time through a lot more press. I mean, really, they were there. And he heads back to France while we see the historians getting the go-ahead to publish the Margburg file. I would say David is utterly defeated. I don't even know if there's anything behind his eyes right now. It's like every muscle in his face has sagged, kind of. Mm -hmm. And then the historians get their 
file and get their permission to go ahead and they're happy. They're not like jumping up and down, but they're very satisfied that truth has won. Mm -hmm. I have to say that when these documents were published, he publicly said, David did, that it was all propaganda and fabrication. He denied any, I mean, what else was he going to do, I guess? But it's on public record that he said it's all propaganda and fabrication and none of that is true. And I have to say that he was right about one thing that, you know, way back in that first meeting when he was still... um facade nice Mm -hmm. to Elizabeth. He said that the people would not believe such a thing. They would attribute it to the correct source, which is German propaganda. And they kind of did for the most part. Okay. I have a question. If you had been alive at this time and your king had abdicated and he was clearly in exile, there was had to be something behind it, wouldn't you think? Well, no, because so much was made of the divorced woman that he couldn't marry and the true true love. And that was the I mean, half the country was like, golly, just let him get married already. That's true. You're right. What the heck? So, I mean, I think had I been subject to that and then, you know, his brother had done such a good job getting us through the war. You know, you hated the Germans so much and the Germans had been so horrible and you learned about the concentration camps. And then this thing came out from the Germans about your king. I think you wouldn't pay it. Any, I mean, it's just, yeah. like, quote, dirty Jerry's or whatever, you know. <laughs> you're right. You're right. I wasn't adding in that element. With David heading back to France, Elizabeth meets with Billy Graham again for his in-person wisdom on Christian forgiveness, and he shares it with her. So she poses the question, can you be a good Christian and not forgive? And he has an answer ready. Jesus asked forgiveness for those that had killed him. But then he forgot who he's dealing with. (laughs) Another head of the church. She comes back with like, yes, but he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. That was conditional. I guess the implication is this guy that I can't tell you about knew what he did. Mm -hmm. So is it still under the same guidelines? (laughs) (laughs) Do I have an out here? Do I have an out here? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he, I have to say, is very kind. And you could see it in his face that he understands two things, that she can't tell him what's troubling her. Also, that she is very tortured about it. And so he comes up with, I I was very impressed at this wisdom. He comes up with something that will work in this situation since he, he can't possibly know the details. He says, here's the solution when you feel you can't forgive. You ask God for forgiveness for yourself and then you pray for those that you can't forgive. Seems very wise. He was a faith advisor to all kinds of heads of state. I mean, presidents. All the way up through Obama, he was an advisor to them on matters of faith. So he knew the right words to say to her. And I'm sure if there was in real life a situation where she had this kind of um, quandary that he would have told her wisdom like that, I would imagine. I have vague recollections of some kind of religious figure giving very similar advice during um, the West Wing to Jed Bartlett. (laughs) Like, was it Billy Graham? Bar- well, you know what? Now that I know about this Billy Graham 
faith advisor to the stars, maybe it was supposed to be an homage to him. I don't think so, because Jed Bartlett, the president in the West Wing, was a Catholic. So I think it was probably a priest, I would guess. But um, very similar advice where the, the man couldn't be told the details, but Jed Bartlett wanted some spiritual advice. So Elizabeth takes his advice and we see her praying. She's wearing the same outfit that she was wearing when she was talking to Billy Graham. And she's praying alone in the chapel. And we see David and Wallace back in France alone. And they are looking very defeated. His posture is not good. We only see him from the back. And I mean, his head's even tilted to the side like he is just slumped. And she comes around and she sits next to him and she is very kind to him. She is. She puts her arm around him. Now they are going to need to construct a whole different kind of life. I mean, the door of hope was closed for reconciliation with his family. You know, you must move on. You must move on. They have decades left to move on in. It was beautiful. I mean, the music, it's like really sad strings playing. I'm not musical, but, <laughs> but it was just it, the mood and just the way they framed them in the window. They like to do these shots from behind. Remember that first episode when they yeah. did a lot of shots of um, Queen and Philip from behind? It's mm-hmm. another one of those. And I, it was sad, but it was beautiful, too. Even her praying in the church, it was beautiful. It was just the sunlight was coming through the stained glass windows and she was just alone and deep in prayer. So Elizabeth is again praying before bed like she does every night in her jammies, just probably like she did when she was a little kid. And Philip comes in drunk after an evening of celebrating David's fate with a couple people she never would have guessed. I love drunk Philip so much. I just want to smooch him. (laughs) He comes in and he's staggering around and he's full of like freaking suppressed joy. And he's like, oh, are you praying again? Ha ha, put in a word for me. We all know you have the ear of the big man upstairs. Ha ha ha. (laughs) And she's like, now come on, take this seriously. And he's all like, like undressing, laying on the sofa. He has been getting poo-faced with the most unlikely drinking companions. Why don't you have a guess? It could be any human in this country, you know. Then he goes, your dear ma and Tommy Lassels. And she's just like, what? (laughs) He doesn't actually say where they were, but in my head, I have them at a pub. I don't know why. In my mind, they are literally in Tommy Lassell's office. But I don't see. Here's the thing. I don't think Tommy Lassell's would get blotto upstairs where people who aren't you know, uh-huh. where the servants might see. So uh, does he have an office? I, maybe they took over a dean's office and he's going to come in the next day and go, what are all these cigarette butts? What are all these bottles? What is happening? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where they were, but they decided they were all going to celebrate the one thing they have in common, which, of course, Queen Elizabeth is like, I cannot possibly guess what that is. And he's like, you, uh, of course. And that heroic way you kicked that wretched fool out today. (laughs) She tells him that she really doesn't feel heroic. And he is not having any of that. Nonsense. You protected your country and your family, and you stopped Satan from entering into the Garden of Eden. A gold star from Jesus. 
<laughs> and then he's like, and a gold star from me, too. And since you want to kiss him, I guess Elizabeth does, too. <laughs> yes, there are brown chickens and brown cows. <laughs> That's right. And everything fades to black like it does in any good Hallmark movie at this particular moment. <laughs> Cards are being played again by David and Wallace and their friends as David settles back into his old dull life where the closest he can come to even playing king is in the hand of cards. Was that a little heavy-handed to you? Like, yes. king, king, <laughs> putting down on top of other kings. Wallace looks up at him like, oh, poor dear. <laughs> poor dear. Do the kings remind you of being a king? We should get a new deck of cards. No kings. All jokers. That's right. <laughs> he had the most wonderful green smoking jacket on and a burgundy tie. It was just lovely. <laughs> they dressed him so nicely, but the mood was very somber. That's for sure. And that's the end. That's the end of the episode. Well, actually, it's not. There is a final scene. Ah, the yes. Ah, yes. That's the end of the fictional episode. Now we are going to actually see fact several black and white photos of the real David and the real Wallace on that German trip when they met with Hitler flash slowly onto the screen. Without commentary, without cards, without context. Mm -hmm. it's... I was buttonholed at a Christmas party to tell people about the Marburg files. Is it real? Did it really happen? Why are those pictures? I can't believe. And of course, I had to explain to people about the trip. Mm -hmm. But pictures given without context will definitely push your emotions in a different direction. Yeah, I think Peter Morgan, the creator and writer, was definitely on the side. And maybe he just did it for this for drama. But I think he was definitely on the side that the uh, Duke and Wallace were in the Nazi business 100%. I just got that feeling that the way it was presented, there didn't seem to be another side. Again, this is not a documentary. <laughs> and it is more dramatic for him to be evil. You know, we want to have a villain, right? But um, the pictures that you're going to see, I mean, David is talking to some German officers surrounded by Germans with swastika patches on and David walking in front of those troops you were talking about. They're all lined up at attention and he's walking through them as if he was inspecting the troops and David and Wallace in the middle of a Nazi group and she's smiling and then David standing next to Hitler and Wallace on the other side of him in a group photo. That's you can see that picture everywhere. And the final photo they show is the one where Wallace is shaking hands with Hitler and David is right next to her, just beaming about the whole thing. But out of context, it could go either way, knowing the story, right? Well, there you go. That's the actual end. And it is a heavy one. This is a heavy, heavy episode. <laughs> I know it was. It was very well done, I thought. I mean, there was a couple parts that were in those flashbacks with all the cards, you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot of them, but I thought it was very well done. I would wonder if somebody didn't know the other side of the story, how they would come out at the end after watching it. Well, I can tell you because of all those people at the Christmas party were shocked and appalled and they were thinking Wallace Simpson was this and was that. And like, I can't believe he betrayed everyone in such a way. And this show has done perhaps a, I hate to say it because I liked the episode, perhaps a disservice 
to the whole truth. Like it's now primed a new generation of people to hate Wallace Simpson. (laughs) I completely understand why they went this direction. Mm -hmm. You do need a villain. You need a good story arc. There's a lot that you could use that is true that points in this direction. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not a documentary. Just the end. (laughs) I am not here to deprogram everybody's water cooler. Mm-hmm. And everybody's break room and everybody's Christmas party. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I have to recommend that you listen to our Wallace Simpson episodes. So I really think to understand my confusion right now, you have to listen to those. Yeah. No, I agree. It's episodes 93 and 94. And we'll put a link in our show notes. So, you can get so there. I don't dismiss the power of this narrative at all. And I think Peter Morgan did a great job of storytelling. And I simultaneously am disappointed at another setback for this Wallace's side of the story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I, I'm, I'm with you there. Totally with you. Totally with you. Also, like I said in the Wallace Simpson episode, for people who are the head of the Church of England, a church that nominally says forgiveness is very important, to have waited not only this long, but spoiler alert, even longer to forgive him is a fundamental flaw. And I'm liking how this episode has explored that because the whole time in Wallace Simpson, I'm like, I cannot believe that they can hold these two beliefs simultaneously. But this episode has made me kind of realize why or how you could do that. Mm-hmm. It was like a parallel episode. So we didn't see Margaret. We didn't see Tony. And that was what all Lasha was about. This is just what is happening elsewhere, you know, type mm-hmm. of thing. So, um, yeah, interesting. So we're still waiting on the Margaret and Tony. I mean, they took it to the next level. Now what's going to happen? I have a feeling we'll know by next episode. <laughs> <laughs> you do. I wonder I why. <laughs> do. Um, we're still waiting on more children which is another thread that I was looking forward to seeing. But I do believe that we are getting some results of Philip having gotten the title of prince. Not necessarily just the title, but the precedence. Because I think Philip is respecting himself, like he's not popping off all the time. And I think that's making Elizabeth treat him differently also. Yeah, he feels more confident, you mean, in his position, that he actually has a position. Yeah. And (laughs) Dean still doesn't have his mustache, so. Kind of sad. You miss his mustache? You know what? You see the actor that plays Lassels, and of course, he doesn't wear that big old brush mustache in Mm -mm. real life. And I think he, I mean, he's still handsome, but I think he looks significantly less handsome without the mustache. Interesting. I don't like facial hair too much, so I can't really comment. I'm I'm biased in the wrong direction. (laughs) Uh, I know we always talk about their outfits, but did you have a favorite? Um, Okay, so the outfit that I thought was the best. Now, I will give a special mention to Wallace Simpson's um, ice crystal necklace that she wore during the first card playing scene that I thought was spectacular. And I also have um, some feelings, some good feelings for also the fake ribbon drop scene where she's going in. She has a gray dress with a red um, thing on the skirt. I don't know. You can always count on Wallace to look nice. Her outlines are always good. I mean, she's got Chaparelli designing for her i think she's gonna be okay um so i i would just say pretty much anything wallace wears i'm gonna go ahead and give it the nod cool uh, mine was too but the one that stood out was that uh queen triton outfit but. special mention for the man at the party trying to have a drink while wearing a giant brass diving helmet <laughs> the diver yeah and also special mention to uh queen mom's tutu hat like a horse in some kind of country fair would have a giant hat like that made of flowers <laughs> sitting on its head 
It looked like my daughter when she got into her dress-up trunk and took a little tutu from her dance class and put it on her head. That's what it looked like to me. There you go. Okay, so um, we are going to link you to some details on the documents, that the famous documents we keep getting referred to um, through this whole episode. There is a letter to Lord Beaverbrook revealing how the Duke of Windsor was feeling toward his family following the abdication. Also, the book 17 Carnations by Andrew Morton. Nazis and the Windsors again. If you want to learn more about that, take with a grain of salt. It's good for finding out facts and then you can interpret them your own way instead of listening to what he has to say necessarily. <laughs> and then um, what else? Oh, the, the obituary of Margaret Lambert. And also, might as well, a link to Patty Power who is a bookmaker. And I don't mean he makes books. I mean, he's in a betting shop. Oh. Um, he's a bookie. He is a bookie. The odds on who will be the designer of Meghan Markle's wedding dress. <laughs> I didn't mention this during the episode, but I'm going to also put this on the show notes. There is a short video. It's a family video of Elizabeth, Margaret, the Queen Mom, and Uncle David all giving Nazi salute in their backyard. Just to add a little more confusion to however you're thinking. <laughs> um, I do have a little bit of video of a Billy Graham crusade in London. His uh, final appearance was at Wembley Stadium, and it's on YouTube. God, what a great time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, the Wallace Simpson episode on the History Chicks podcast, episode 93 and 94. No, I do want to warn you, and I think we might even warn you in the episode, if you are a British person, you might not like what we have to say. So, I mean, we know we're not dismissing your opinions at all. We do know, and it um, it might be hard to hear some things. And I did bleep every time I cursed, but I got all head up during that episode to the point where I'm not entirely sure what got into me. <laughs> So that will do it for season two, episode six of The Crown. Stay tuned for episode seven, which I do believe has an entirely different feel to this one. Oh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Do you know anyone who watches The Crown? Spread the word about the recapery, won't you? And tell a few friends. Also, we've got a Pinterest board set up at The Recapery for Season 2 if you'd like even more rabbit holes to travel down, just head on over there. And most importantly, don't miss our original podcast, The History Chicks, where we tell you the stories of women throughout history as only we can. See you next time! Just put that on repeat. <laughs> you're right. You're absolutely right. Yes.